evidence and answers. Jesus' life was miraculous right from the very start. Jesus had a miraculous birth. He lived a miraculous life, miraculously rose from the dead, and had a miraculous ascension to heaven. At Christmas, we celebrate the virgin birth of Christ. Why was the virgin birth necessary, and what is its significance? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat presents part one of a Christmas message on the reason and significance of the virgin birth. Now, here's Pat. Good morning, and a Merry Christmas to you all. I want to thank Pastor Jason for allowing me to speak to you this morning. And he asked me to cover the reason for the virgin birth. So we'll be studying that this morning. Well, as we begin our time, let's dedicate our time to the study of God's Word. Lord, we pray that as we study your Word, we would be inspired. We would come to a new understanding of what it meant when you came here to earth. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I was going through the study today, I thought of what happened in Vietnam. And many, I remember speaking to several veterans, they said when they were captured in the Vietnam War, they thought they were going to a prison camp, like what they saw in World War II. Or some even thought, you know, what they saw on TV with Hogan's Heroes kind of thing. They thought that's the situation they were going to. But they realized when they arrived, it was not a camp. It was literally a prison. It was a prison. And there they suffered unspeakable kinds of horror, of torture, day and night. Some for weeks, many for months, many for years. And I remember the story of the late Senator John McCain, who was an Air Force pilot. He was captured in Vietnam and there was imprisoned in one of those horrific Vietnamese prisons there where he was tortured, he was hung by his two arms this way, not this way, this way, why he suffered the lifelong injuries that he did. But through his diplomatic connections, because his family was high up in government, they were able to negotiate his release. And as his fellow prisoners cheered for his release, when the officers announced to Senator McCain that his release had been negotiated. He looked at his fellow prisoners and he looked at the officers who imprisoned him and he says, I'm gonna stay. I will remain here until all my fellow Americans are free. And we celebrate and remember his courage and his heroism, a man who chose to forsake his freedom to suffer alongside with his fellow prisoners for how long they did not know. And it's at Christmas we celebrate the Son of God who forsook heaven to come into our fallen world that we had made and to suffer alongside with us. It's an incredible story. The first time I heard it, I was 18 years old, just a high school student. I came to understand what the gospel message was for the first time, that the Son of God, God the Son forsook heaven, and instead of looking at the fallen 
world that we had made filled with evil and suffering. And instead of saying, you guys screwed it up, <laughs> you guys fix it. Good luck. Instead, he saw the mess that we had made and forsook the glory of heaven and said, I'm coming down to rescue you from sin and death. And he didn't come in an ordinary way. He came in a miraculous way, a virgin birth. And Jesus' life was miraculous right from the start. Now, why did God choose this manner in which to enter into the world? Why a virgin birth? Well, I hope today to give you some reasons and the significance of the virgin birth. Now, the first reason for a virgin birth was to fulfill prophecy. The Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would arrive not in an ordinary way, but in a special way. And here are just a few prophecies made hundreds of years before Christ set foot upon the earth of how he would come into the world. In Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin had entered into the world. And sin was about to spread its effects, spread its tentacles. It would infest and affect every area of creation. God gives this prophetic message of hope way back in Genesis chapter 3, way back at creation. He says this, I'll put enmity between you, speaking of the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was a promise that from the seed of a woman would arise one who would crush the head of the serpent and the redemption of mankind would be accomplished. Now the phrase, the seed of the woman, her offspring. That's important to note because in a patriarchal society, the lineage is traced through the father. But here, only the woman is mentioned and the seed of the woman, no mention of the father. The phrase, her offspring, see the woman implies the Messiah would come by a woman, but not a natural father. This one's coming by supernatural means. Then in Isaiah 7.14, the prophecy that we often recite at this time, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which you know means God with us. Now the Hebrew word there for virgin, it gets attacked by critics quite a bit. Alma there, which is translated virgin, in the Hebrew, the word literally means young woman of maritable age. And many critics will argue, and I just got this the other day on a radio show, a critic argued that Alma doesn't mean virgin, it just means young maiden of maritable age, whether virgin or not. So it's not prophesying a virgin, miraculous kind of birth. Well, if you do a word study in the Old Testament, of every time this word Alma is used, it's used of a young woman of maritable age who is a virgin. That's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. Study it. For example, Genesis 24:43, Abraham tells his servant, go get a young Alma to marry my son, Isaac. 
Well, I hope she wasn't married. Hobie's looking for a young virgin who is not married. So when you study it in the Old Testament, it means virgin. That's why when the Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into the Greek in about 250 BC, when that translation was made, not by the Christians, <laughs> it's 200 years before Christ, right? By the Jews, they translated the word Alma into the Greek Parthenos, which means virgin. So it is translated correctly. This was to be a miraculous entry of the Son of God. So being born a virgin fulfills biblical prophecy in a miraculous way. And according to biblical scholars, there are over a hundred prophecies made of Christ hundreds of years, centuries before he sets foot upon the earth, which he fulfills regarding his entrance into the world, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. No other person, study them all, all right? No other person has such a legacy of prophetic fulfillment. You know, if a prophecy is made and a guy fulfills maybe one or two, you might say, oh, okay, pretty lucky, you know, got the luck of the draw. All right, but when it comes to 12, when it comes to 24, when it comes to 50 now, what's the probability a guy could fulfill these just by chance? Well, when you get to the number of prophecies made of Christ, that's pretty much a mathematical zero. Only a infinite, eternal God who is outside of time, who can see the future as clearly as he sees the present, can predict the future and make prophecies with 100% accuracy as was done of Jesus Christ. No other person, none in the history of the world, has so many prophecies written of him, which he fulfills. And some skeptics question whether these prophecies were actually made before Christ. Well, we've got pretty powerful evidence for that. There's pretty good evidence that the Old Testament was completed by 400 BC. And if you don't want to take that historical evidence, the Septuagint, translated under the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus of Egypt there, they completed the Septuagint in 250 BC. That's the Greek translation of the entire Old Testament. And of course, the famous discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. Perhaps the greatest manuscript discovery of an ancient work of all time. Hundreds, hundreds of ancient manuscripts, some as early as 400 BC, they are dating now. Hundreds of manuscripts of the Old Testament were discovered along the Dead Sea caves there. Twelve caves we have discovered with hundreds of manuscripts. Fragments from every book of the Old Testament were discovered, right? And one like the scroll of Isaiah, we found the entire scroll of Isaiah. Most of them were dated 100 BC. So even if you don't believe Daniel wrote Daniel or Isaiah wrote Isaiah, at least 100 years before Christ set foot upon the earth, right? we know that these prophecies were down and written and Christ fulfilled each one. Now, the life lesson we learned here is this. Fulfilled prophecy confirms the Bible as the Word of God. It's supernatural confirmation that this book is indeed the Word of God. No other book 
has hundreds of prophecies of great detail that have been fulfilled as the Bible. There's no other book like it. You don't see it in the Lotus Sutra, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. Go study them. Only the Bible is supernaturally confirmed in this way. And fulfilled prophecy confirms Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. No other person in the history of the world has hundreds, over a hundred prophecies predicting their entrance, life, ministry, death, and resurrection as Christ. Fulfilled prophecy exemplifies that this book we have here is given to us by divine inspiration of God and that the Savior we worship is the divine Son of God. So the virgin birth was needed to fulfill prophecy. Second, the virgin birth was needed because we needed a perfect sacrifice, a sinless Savior to fulfill the requirements of the law and to pay the price of sin and death once and for all. Now, when you read the Old Testament law, there were several sacrifices to pay for our sin that was to be made by the Jewish people. And in the Old Testament law, whenever a sacrifice for sin was made, it required a perfect lamb without blemish or a bull or a goat that was, quote, without blemish. You had to find the finest one in your flock to offer to the Lord in payment for our sins. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed the night of the Passover when the angel of death passed over the Israelites on the eve before the great event of the Exodus was to be, according to Exodus chapter 12, a lamb without blemish. Why was that? Well, God is holy and perfect, and the price for sin, for breaking God's law against a holy and perfect God, needed to be a sacrifice without blemish. This symbolized the holiness of God, and only a perfect sacrifice can pay the price for our sin. Now, the animal sacrifices, they're temporary, right? They're foreshadowing. These were done every year, but it was a prophetic symbol of the perfect sacrifice that would one day come and pay for the sins of the world once and for all. So in order to be the savior of men, the ultimate sacrifice had to be human because he needs to take our place. Right? Only a, a human life can substitute for another human life. But he had to be perfect without sin. So he had to be human and he had to be sinless. Well, no human can be sinless. It's not possible for absolute holiness to reside in a body of sinful flesh. We're all sinful and fallen. From the time of Adam, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not possible for the Messiah to come in the normal way because he would end up inheriting our sin nature. So it's not possible through the normal reproductive process. So if Jesus was conceived in the same way as the rest of us are, then he would inherit the sin nature and a 
defective body which would disqualify him from being the savior of mankind. But Jesus was born through supernatural means, born in the flesh, but in a way in which he does not inherit our sin nature. Therefore, he was our perfect sacrifice, our sinless savior. Paul states that of Christ for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was sinless. And here in this particular verse, Paul is not focusing on Jesus' human life, but on his inglorious and shameful death. Christ experienced the full consequences of human sin. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God and the object of God's wrath. So he was treated as a sinner in his death. God placed the sins of all of us on Christ, and his righteousness is given to those who receive him as Lord and Savior. No other person can claim living a sinless life. That is not possible. Because we inherit that sin nature from Adam. You know, read the Quran. Several times in the Quran, Muhammad is told to confess and repent and turn from his sin. Buddha struggled with sinful desires. He struggled with his desires. Confucius writes of the true gentleman, I have not attained that status, nor have I seen anyone else attain that status. But with Christ, his closest associates saw that he had no sin, and even his enemies could not point out any sin in his life. So the sinless one took on our sin to free us from the penalty of sin and eternal death. You know, there's several stories of things that happened in these prison camps in World War II. And I remember one particular story in a Jewish camp. There were a group of 20 Jewish prisoners there in a Nazi camp, and they were sent out into the fields to work every day. And when they came back, the prison guards had to count all of their shovels and tools to make sure they were all back because they could be used to escape from that particular prison. Well, they gathered the prisoners, of course, at the end of the day, this group of 20. A Nazi guard said, all right, throw your shovels here in the pile, and they counted them. One, two, three, five, six, seven, nine, 19. The guard looked at the prisoner and said, we're a shovel short. Who stole it? And no one knew who stole that shovel. And the captain of the guard said, I'm going to ask you one more time. And if that person doesn't step forward, we're going to shoot you all right now. And after a moment of hesitation, one prisoner stepped forward and said, I stole the shovel. And they beat that man senseless in front of all the prisoners. And eventually that man died of his wounds. And his fellow Jewish prisoners said, what an idiot. You know, he got what he deserved. You know, someone asked, what's his name? He said, well, I don't know, but great, what a dummy. Uh, but after they beat him senseless and they dragged him away from the group, they gathered the group again and said, all right, line up. All right, let's count the shovels. One, two, three, four, five, uh, 19, 20. There's 20 shovels here. Let's count that again. Uh, 20 shovels. They had miscounted the shovels. An innocent man 
stepped forward, gave his life for his fellow prisoners. And many of them didn't even know his name. In the same way, the Son of God, the sinless Savior, stepped forward and took our sin and suffered a cruel death on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God, that we may live and be free from the penalty of sin and death. And the life lesson we learn is that the sacrificial death of Christ confirms God's tremendous love for each one of us. The God of creation who didn't have to, but chose to come into our fallen world and to suffer as he had to, is he had to pay that price for our sin. The sinless Savior took on our penalty that we may have everlasting life for all who would believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Third, third reason for the virgin birth is that only God could pay the price. Sin requires death, or as the Bible talks, the shedding of blood for its payment. But there's one problem. The eternal God doesn't die. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the Savior had to be human in order to take our place. An animal cannot fulfill that role. So in order to die a sacrificial death for all mankind, the Savior had to be human. He had to be sinless. But the death of an ordinary man wouldn't pay for sins eternally, for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. Only God could pay that kind of price. So we needed a Savior who was man, but also 100% God. And indeed, this is what Christ accomplished by coming into the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, For he is the propitiation, fancy word there, for our sins, and not only ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So John states Jesus is the propitiation, or the means by which we are forgiven, the means of forgiveness for our sins. And John makes it clear he's not only the propitiation for our sins, that's of John and his fellow believers, but also for the rest of the world and for all time. So the death of Christ was intended for all mankind and for all time. Now this doesn't mean that everyone is saved. This is not teaching universalism. All right, because John makes it very clear that it's only those who receive the gift of Christ's sacrificial death, only those who place their trust in Jesus Christ, only those then receive the gift of eternal life. So it's like this, the death of Christ extends to all, the offer is made to all, but it is effective only to those who believe. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whosoever will believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever will, the invitation is given to all who believe in Him. Only those who believe will have eternal life.
time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. <laughs>